take a network break. This is the 354th edition of the network break. That's about seven years worth, which is kind of disturbing when you think about it. Our, our regular programming is interrupted due to Drew taking a well-deserved break this week. And sadly, this means no virtual donuts because he isn't here to get them, right? There's always someone in the office who gets the donuts. And when they aren't around, everybody is thinking, why didn't someone else get the donuts? Welcome to corporate office life. Well, speaking of corporate offices and the virtual one that I live in, I can't do the network break alone. So I'm privileged to have a special guest this week. Welcome to Ethan Banks, my longtime collaborator and evil master lord behind the throne at Packet Pushes. Welcome, Mr. Banks, to the network break green room. How are you doing? <laughs> Buddy, we can do without the virtual donors. We're both getting fat in our old age. It's got to be got to be truth told right there. That's it. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> it is interesting, but thank you for coming along. I don't often get to do shows with you these days. It feels like once upon a time we used to talk to each other all the time and now kind of like we've taken off in different directions and we try and spread the load around a little bit. So it's going to be good to do Network Break. Yes. Today. I'm excited yes. to tell you you're wrong. I'm so looking forward to this. <laughs> you do that all the time, just not normally in part of it. <laughs> On that note, before we dive in, let's thank our sponsors. Thanks to Juniper Abstract. Their intent-based solution simplifies the deployment and operations and management of your data center network from day zero through day two. It delivers automation and continuous validation of your data center network in multi-vendor environments. The result is saving on downstream costs and exponentially more value from your network investments. Go to www.juniper.net slash packet pushes slash abstra, and you can find more information there. Thanks to Abstra for being a sponsor. And also after the news, we've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet, where we get a good look at how Fortinet brings together all the elements of a zero trust network access solution. And with the zero trust market is getting a lot of attention, a lot of people are looking at, obviously, the shift to distributed work. And there were some good topics in the in Fortinet talking about why their zero trust network access or their ZDNA thing is slightly different and slightly superior from their point of view to other solutions. And then if you're thinking about, you know, what is it that makes ZDNA a thing, this might be an interesting discussion to take some notes from. And of course, if you like Network Break, don't hesitate to check out our other podcasts, including the Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. Lots of nerdy tech and compelling conversations around infrastructure, cloud, giving you some professional development knowledge that you don't normally have. You can find them all at packetpushes.net or just search for Packet Pushes on your favorite podcatcher and you'll find them listed there. Well, this week was yet another fine example of constipated news. <laughs> VMware saved up all of its announcements for the last three months. And then oh uh, in a massive blurt of excitement and stimulation, we have unconstipated all the news from VM this week. Um, now, you spent quite a bit of time diving into this, Ethan. What's oh. the first one that you sort of came away with from their 2021 major announcements at VMware? Reading through the ecstatic bloviation that was VMworld 2021 major announcements. I mean, yeah. as, as, as gross as it is, Greg, the uh, yes. constipation analogy is perfect. Perfect, because there is so much that VMware had to get out of its system. But I'm, but before we get to these announcements, Greg, I want to do a, like a quick analysis and get uh, give a take on where VMware is at in 2021. So just just some quick bullet point observations and see what you think about this. So one, mm -hmm. from a, a consumption perspective, they're a bit pricey. Uh, there are cloud native customers that feel that they don't need VMware anymore, that feels irrelevant to some of them as a brand. And so that begs yep. the question, if that's true, let's say for some customers, how long is VMware going to be relevant? Well, okay, this is no mystery to VMware. They know this and they've been in the mode of pivoting for, for a, really a few years now. If you look at their acquisitions and different product strategies, they're trying mm -hmm. to get out of that rent extraction business built around more or less vSphere. They're, they really want to remain relevant. And so, again, that pivot's ongoing. Uh, they do have time to do this because they've got entrenched operations on its side. So many customers are, have VMware buried so deeply in their enterprise IT that they, they do have time to pull all of this off. And so now they're getting into this, this play, whereas you look at the announcements we're about to get into, VMware yeah. is all about multi-cloud and on-prem and bringing it together. And that is actually a bit of an advantage for them, I think, because they're already in-house. So if you can build, continue your VMware relationship as a company and get into cloud, that's kind of a win. It can't, seems like an obvious play there. 
Uh, and VMware yeah. is, is banking on that. They're saying, we're going to make your complex IT easier. They're talking about, oh, you want to get into Kubernetes. We've got Tanzu. They talk about Tanzu a lot and keep building on that uh, yeah. acquisition. And yeah. yeah. I, I guess I kind of see it as like pretty standard business practice, right? They've mm -hmm. landed inside the customers with vSphere and to a lesser extent, the tools that orchestrate vSphere, like vCloud Director, still haven't quite got vCloud Director working properly or simply as far as I can tell, but they're working on it. And then they went and bought another adjacent product, NSX. Then they went and built a SAN type technology. And that was another adjacent technology. That's the natural. So you got vSAN. And then the obvious thing was to package that all up into a bundle. So that became vBlocks or uh, whatever the HCI version of that is. And then they went with partner with anybody who'd stand still long enough for them to nail a VMware badge to the outside of their servers and storage arrays. Um, and so that's continued. Uh, obviously, SD-WAN came down the pipeline and then obviously multi-cloud, like putting VMware somehow into Azure, AWS and Google has been a thing. So I don't see it as a growth story. I see it as an adjacency. So once you've landed inside of the customer, what can you do to add some fries with that and a Coke on the side? Oh, I see it somewhat differently. In other words, we know the land and expand story. That's it mm. happens all the time, right? Um, but this is a land and I, d please don't sail away, customer. We want to keep you as you move into the cloud native world. What can we as yeah. VMware do to keep them uh, around? So let's let's assume over time the vSphere business sort of fades out. It's not happening yet, but but that's coming. Yeah. If you, as you look at all the different cloud and cloud native offerings that are out there, so how does VMware stay relevant? How do they how do they keep those customers and keep that money coming in long yeah. term? And that that's what I see all these announcements is really at. This is VMware going. We matter. Uh, for the long term for you. And here's all the mm -hmm. ways in which we matter. It's not the VMware of uh, 10 years ago or even five years ago. We're we're doing something new and we're bringing a lot of things you care about you know, going forward. That's, do you see the distinction well, I'm making? Not land and expand, is, but yeah. Yeah, well, the challenge with land and expand is that, you know, when you've landed and you're in a spot, you've carved it out and you don't have any competitors, but you also don't have any enemies. When you go into adjacent market, and so they're able to partner with companies and say, we will sell vSphere with HPE, with Dell, with Cisco, with whoever wants to come on board and we'll, you know, we can make that work. But when you start doing SASE, right, well, then you start to run into direct competition with HPE, Aruba, and their Silverpeak product range, Cisco's Viptela, SD-WAN, and, you know, any one of 30 or 40 other SD-WAN vendors that are out there, Fortinet, for example, Palo Alto, right? Are you going to be competitive in that market at that point? Well, and mm, yeah. do, do your alliances do your? Uh, they say in there uh, they were presenting to the vent to the uh, financial community this week, and they said we are the Switzerland of computing. I'm going. No, you're not. You compete with all of your customers, all of your partners, right? If you're F5 and you're partnered with VMware, and NSX load balancing is a direct competitor. If you're it, well, it's a with frenemy Cisco. thing. It's it's. Yeah, I, I would right. agree. Switzerland's a a hopeful analogy, but uh, there is yeah. definitely a lot of frenemy stuff going on because the partnership alliances are huge, depending on what the product set is that uh, that mm. VMware is getting into. Well, Greg, let's get into the announcements from uh, VMware. Sure. There were five major announcements with some announcements, and uh, this is what VMworld or VMware at VMworld emphasized to the press and analyst community. And we're just going to read through and hit the highlights for you. Mm -hmm. VMware delivers cloud smart approach for the multi-cloud era at VMworld 2021. That doesn't say much in that title, but what that really is, is the launch of VMware cross cloud services. Say that five times fast. The big idea <laughs> is you keep building on VMware and VMware is going to abstract away the public cloud that you're using. Uh, and not just public cloud, but also edge computing and VMware is talking about, they, they were using terms like cloud native and edge native you know, a lot, which I think is interesting. They've done some shows with us on day two cloud on that podcast and talked yeah. about mm. VMware cloud quite a bit and make the point that it's not just about vSphere workloads. We can also, as VMware, bring you into the cloud native. And now they're talking about the edge native world as well. So yeah. this cross-cloud service thing, cost optimization, you get security, you get networking, you get performance monitoring. And they didn't say hypervisor for cloud, but that's kind of the vibe I got from this particular <laughs> announcement, Greg. Well, 
Well, the problem here, of course, is that when you go into any of the existing off-premise clouds, right, whether it's Google, AWS, Azure, they're the three main ones that we would, uh, that most customers are using, Oracle, and then there's a bunch of tier twos. Um, they're all proprietary. They use their own APIs. They refuse to standardize on a common storage layer or a common compute way to instantiate compute. They call it innovation, but what it just means is they want to do it in their own way, right? And it's not necessarily wanting to be locked in, but that's the outcome. If you start writing your your code to a systems administration or DevOps around Google's portfolio, you can't have to rewrite it to move to Azure or back to AWS. And in that sense, they're mainframes, right? So there's a movement to say, well, I actually want to use all of these clouds. And in some of those clouds, I want to use the proprietary mainframe features, you know, uh, AWS's Elasticsearch version or Google's AI engine, or maybe I want to use uh, Azure's database functionality. And I I won't use them all at once, but this project might use that, might be in the Google, and this project might be in the Azure, right? So it's not that they're spread across. It's not this distributed cloud or hybrid cloud. It's this cross cloud. That is, I've got some functions over there and then keeping them all running at the same way or operating them and sustaining them. You can't do it if you've got three different implementations, three incompatible proprietary versions on each cloud. So you have to find a way to standardize. We talked about this with Alkira Networks and their networking over the top and how they they just ignore what the vendors are doing underneath and lay something completely on the top so you don't have to see what's in the cloud at all, right? And making it even easier. So a lot of shops might use Terraform to stand up this infrastructure in a multitude of clouds and they kind of build around Terraform as the standard way of getting that done. Doesn't mean you don't have to know what's going on in the individual clouds, but it helps. Uh, I think this is taking that even a step further where you're just letting VMware do a lot of the thinking for you to deal with exactly what you said, non-standard APIs or shall we put it proprietary APIs that all of the cloud providers mm. have because they're differentiated, Greg. They yeah. are just, they, you know, everything's got such unique and incredible value. You'd have to pick one over the other. Okay, okay yeah. second announcement. <laughs> so that was VMware cross-cloud services number one. It's interesting one. to two, see cross-cloud replace hybrid cloud. Remember three or four years ago, it was all going to be hybrid cloud. We were going to have- Well, that terminology hasn't gone away. I mean, but, but I will no. say hybrid cloud has been de-emphasized. Multi-cloud is kind of become the mm. new term that's even taken that off. And cross-cloud, I think, is is branding, I, I think. I don't know yeah, that we're going to see I an industry adopt cross-cloud as a term. I think a lot of customers have realized that if they start to try and bring AWS skills in-house and Google skills and Azure skills, as well as their existing data center skills, they're just going to break. There's just not that many people available. Yeah, well, they're, and they're, they're breaking the people them. too. They're, 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 yeah, there's that's folks right. that are getting upset just trying to keep up. It, it's getting to be you know, ridiculous because of the, yeah. you can say you're a cloud engineer, but what does that actually mean? It probably means you're an AWS person. Maybe you've got some Azure skills. Yeah, that's and right. Depending on how deeply you need to go, it, it's getting to be too much to keep up with. And the with. research shows that 70% of enterprises are multi-cloud. Yes. So they've got multiple off-prem clouds and on-prem. And probably and that's different, reality. different specialists yep. internally that are dealing with each uh, in that it's not the same application spread across multiple clouds. It's for this app, this cloud was the best thing. And for this app, this mm -hmm. cloud was the best thing, which has driven the adoption of these different clouds. Or I see it as uh, for this project, we partnered with this company and they chose Google. And, you know, we ended, and we oh, went I, and yeah. subbed out another contract and that was done on it. It wasn't even as deliberate, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some of that as well. I'm sure there's mm. some of that as well. All right. And more now, Greg, we got a lot of announcements to get through here. So All second right, announcement from VMware. VMware propels app modernization for customers on any cloud. Okay, keywords there, app modernization, and those are that that's dog whistling for people that are like Kubernetes and containers and infrastructure as code and doing it all at once and pipelines and CI CD. And what they're really getting yeah. at here is Tanzu. Tanzu application platform beta has a bunch of new features and they're all developer focused. So I don't want to get into those here since our crew is mostly uh, more on the ops side of the house, Greg. Um, yeah. So VMware is really trying to encourage Tanzu adoption. And so to that, uh, they've got two new free tiers offerings, VMware Tanzu Community Edition, and then VMware is announcing VMware Tanzu Mission Control with a free tier. The, the Mission Control, Tanzu Mission Control has been around for a bit, but they're announcing a free tier of it. And that, mm. again, is going after the nerds, those of us that want to get our hands in and kind of play with products. So well, now you can. If you want to work with Kubernetes using yeah. the VMware Tanzu way of doing things, now you've got Community Edition. Uh, freely available, easy to manage Kubernetes platform, and then uh, the free tier of VMware Tanzu Mission Control. Mission Control, 
I think of it kind of as an umbrella manager for Kate's clusters. So if you want to see how yeah. Tanzu is doing things uh, with the Kubernetes world, VMware is trying to make it really easy for you to get into that by uh, making not making a paywall to uh, to get your fingers in there. Well, that free to paid road is pretty well established now. Customers yeah. won't pay for a product up front until they've had some time or as is much more likely, a lot of customers want can't bring something on board without an extensive evaluation process. And if you pay for it, you just can't get through the door because it won't get through a change board or a review. It's much easier to slide it under the door than it is to come through knocking and opening the door. I think with Tanzu, you've got two different groups of people that you're trying to win yep. over as well, which makes it a more complicated buy. You've got not just the operations community that needs to keep that infrastructure up and running, but then also the dev community that's going to be leveraging Tanzu, Tanzu APIs and so on to get Kubernetes, yep. uh, to, to put their applications onto Kubernetes. So is the, is the dev community happy? Is the operator community happy? If everyone's happy, then finally, and it works with the workflow they'll do that spend. So. I think Tanzu will ultimately be successful, but not because Tanzu is particularly anything, but mostly because it solves the storage and networking problem for enterprises, both in the on-prem cloud and the off-prem cloud, because Kubernetes has really bad primitives for handling storage and networking, and to some extent, even compute. And by strapping Tanzu inside of vSphere, instances, VMs, you automatically solve the storage and the networking because then you get NSX. Now, provided you can afford this, right? Provided you're willing to shift to subscription pricing and VMware has been very clear with financial analysts that they're going to drive, then it's not a choice. Customers aren't going to get a choice. They're going to drive them to subscription pricing and drive them to cloud products generally because the cloud products are more expensive and the subscription pricing makes them more profits and more pro and increases revenue in the long run. So customers don't get to keep doing what they're doing unless they really, really work hard to beat VMware over the head. You, you will all be in upgraded and move to subscription pricing because of that. And this is what Tanzu does for them. Announcement number three, Greg, VMware helps customers move to the cloud with flexibility and speed. That was so many words packed into a title that ultimately says nothing. So what is that all about? Um, that is about VMware Cloud, the VMC product in its various iterations. And it, it's it's more wonderful now, Greg. They got some more features. Yes, yes. Uh, effectively, Kate's is a service delivered by Tanzu on VMC. You can now run your vSphere workloads anywhere. Uh, this is Project Arctic. We got a bunch of projects to talk about, but Project Arctic is bringing native cloud Mm -hmm. connectivity into vSphere, which I thought was pretty interesting. If you're uh, comfortable with uh, managing workloads on vSphere and you know half the IT enterprise world is, if not more, the idea is you can see uh, in vSphere clouds, public clouds, and then run your workloads up there is how they describe that. I haven't seen a demo of this yet, but, uh, but that's Project Arctic is uh, part of this announcement here. Um, yeah, the idea behind Sovereign Cloud comes back to what you talked to in the, a lot of these article, these announcements loop on each other. So the idea yes. behind Sovereign Cloud is that you can build a cloud over the top of all your other clouds. So you've got the on-prem, you've got the off-prem, they want you to run VMware everywhere, so you can actually build your own cloud out of any other cloud. And yeah, that's that's the next next piece of this thing is the is the yeah. sovereign cloud initiative, and it's that to me was tied back to regulations and compliance. But right, you can build your own cloud, whatever you need, yeah. on top of a whole bunch of other clouds, which ties back yeah, to the so first announcement where there is some abstraction going on uh, of the yeah. different clouds and so on. So if you want to put it in a facility in you know Germany and Ireland because you have EU GPDR requirements, you can do that because you can build over the top of. And then you can specify exactly where the instances run. And maybe you're running with a tier two, tier three cloud provider in those countries. Hmm. But VMware says operating that on your own is too hard for you. We are developing these tools so that you can bring all that together into a unified whole. Let's pretend that VMware has been very good at unifying and orchestrating containers and, and VMs for the last 10 years. And that they've got a proven history of getting that to work really well. vCloud director, I'm looking at you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they have a bit of proof put, you know, they have to stand up and make this work. Keep in mind that Pert Gelsinger has been flogging this horse for well over 10 years now. And it really hasn't found traction with customers to my mind. So if they're saying that we can build the best cloud and we can then put it over the top of other clouds and that makes an even better cloud. Well, that There's a lot of proof to be that, made that out of that. That is part pudding. of Pat's legacy. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. Regu was pretty clear in all of his speaking in the keynotes that this this is the direction, though. I mean, and it's 
Well, okay. So another point under this announcement that's worth bringing in, you know, VMware Cloud, VMC gets more NSX Cloud DR and Carbon Black features, you know, a lot of that security kind of stuff yeah. there. Um, th in other words, th th there's an emphasis here on we can do this. We have all the products in-house and we can bring these together to deliver what you're expressing skepticism about, you know, the ability to yeah. do you know, the multi-cloud stuff. Will, will they deliver that? We'll, we'll see. There's three more quote unquote projects that VMware has. And projects are their tech preview, uh, project technology code names where they're delivering things in the future. Uh, we mentioned Project Arctic a minute ago. That was the native cloud connectivity into vSphere. Well, there's three more we'll mention quickly here. Project Capitola, software-defined memory, and they'll allow you to access memory for price performance considerations across things like DRAM, PMEM, NVMe, and then more different technologies eventually. Project Cascade, industry standard programmatic interface for IaaS and containers as a service consumption. Um, although they didn't, I didn't see enough detail to understand exactly what VMware is uniquely bringing to the table here. You know, this, yeah. Well, I mean, industry standard programmatic interface. I, I don't know what that means. Does that mean Kubernetes? Is that what they're trying to say? I'm not sure. I One couldn't like. I think I hear you saying that you don't really understand what this announcement's about. It's <laughs> fairly wafty, right? It was and, pretty, uh, pretty high, high up there and vague, and uh, maybe it was buried in some of the copy because there was so much copy in these announcements. One more project, <laughs> Greg, is Project Ensemble, designed as yeah. a unified control plane for VMware Cloud, uh, consolidating visibility across uh, vRealized cloud management services. That's Control plane and then and then visibility, I think, is the key there. If you're consolidating visibility, you don't have to look in three different places to monitor three different things. You can look in one place to monitor the three different things. So. Do these things all feel like features, not products? Like, I, I don't... The challenge that I have with these is that when VMware defines a project, and this is what they call shipping the org chart. So when VMware defines these things as a project, these projects get assigned a cost. And then they turn into a product and then they have to recover the cost of the development of this project. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so what they're saying is we're going to do software defined memory, price performance across various technologies, DRAM, PVPMEM, NVMe, and more eventually. Okay, that's great. Natural evolution of your product that the, the hardware environment on which you operate is adapting and changing as new silicon comes to market. That's a feature, not a product. My fear would be is that they'd say, and you can now buy software defined memory but with an, an extra license. This doesn't sound this doesn't sound like a feature that adds value. It's just a feature that keeps up. I think a lot of this it goes back to my you know original uh, analysis trying to set up these announcements. There mm. is a concern in the VMware camp of long-term relevance. Mm. If they continue to bake these features in, whether they're market leading, revolutionary, a product or just a, another checkbox on an existing product, Hmm. They've got to have this stuff to keep customers around. The longer they keep customers around and they remain entrenched in the multi-cloud era, the less likely they have folks defecting and just moving off to some cloud-native platform. So one more project, Greg, to mention, which is Project Ensemble. Oh, never mind, uh -huh. Greg, I mentioned that one. Let's go on to the fourth the fourth announcement <laughs> here. Getting buried in my own notes because there's so many of them. Sure, sure, sure. So sure. VMware yeah. charts course for customers to seize opportunity at the edge. All right, that's all about edge computing. So VMware has made a lot of yeah. noise here at this VMworld about uh, edge computing and what that looks like from the VMware perspective. So it's kind of the same as the cloud and multi-cloud story, only if you take in your brain what you think of as public cloud and just say, oh, it's an edge computing stack and VMware wants to layer on top of that. That's what they're getting at. They're offering the VMware Edge Compute Stack to run, which I believe runs workloads, um, VMware SASE, SD-WAN plus security, we know that story very well, all based on the Velo technology. Uh, VMware Telco Cloud Platform, which uh, is a VMware layer on top of the 4G, 5G core, uh, POPs, yeah. and radio uh, network, the RAN, uh, networking and computing. So VMware is saying, we can make your edge computing easier. We will uh, allow you to do edge native computing by providing a abstraction layer above that in some cases, depending on yeah, the yeah. product. Yeah. They're just, they're trying to be very relevant in the edge space. I'm not convinced that they are. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I'm not sure what they're well, adding here, but. Yeah, they've been making a big push into what they call telco cloud for a while now. And they've spent quite a bit of money uh, making vSphere and VMware products to fit 
the particularly the five G. So we've talked a lot about five G on the on the heavy networking podcast in the last two or three years, and we did a show with Intel a while back. And basically, the point is, is that when you do a five G base station, everything is going to run in VMs. Now there might be containers inside the VMs. There's going to be appliances running in the VMs. If you're going to run VMs and software for all of that, and you're going to have apps, like once the radio signal comes in, it gets digitized. Everything after that is decoded. The signal processing is going to be done in a in a container or in a virtual machine. And the packets, the routing, the accounting, the authentication, all that stuff, monitoring of the radio systems is all going to be done in the 5G base station. And vSphere or VMware thinks it's got a system to orchestrate all of that in the 5G base station. And it can move in and say, well, we don't want to see the via the base station as just a collection of VMs to decode the packets and forward the data. You could also put applications in the in the 5G base station. But Okay, uh, but here, here's my, I don't know if objection is too strong of a word, but why is VMware in this space? They're not really here. They don't have many telco mm. relationships, or at least that's not how I think of VMware. I think of them in the enterprise mm. space, not the telco space. So I see a market opportunity here. There's a lot of money here for sure. And so this feels like a play to just try to get a piece of that pie, but not somewhere that VMware has been historically. Am I, am I right on that or am I missing something? Yeah, definitely. VMware hasn't, but they've got the SD-WAN when they acquired VelaCloud. There's a point there where you could say, well, we can start to put SD-WAN pops around the world. So we've seen some SD-WAN players build virtual backbones, right? And the telcos or some telcos are just rolling over and saying, well, yeah, we're just ordinary infrastructure we're never going to make huge profit margins. You know, we're a bit like electricity. We just produce a certain amount and we make a static profit margin and away we go. But other telcos still believe that they're going to be able to offer services to customers. So why don't I run the SD-WAN appliances in my 5G base station for them, say? Or mm. why am I not running content delivery networks? Or why is Netflix not deploying its CDN nodes into boxes in my Right. This is all a hard sell, though, because a lot of these problems, telcos have solved this. They had to solve this as they were building out their 5G infrastructure. And we saw tons of motion in the open source community with a variety of projects to facilitate exactly Mm -hmm. this. So I'm not saying VMware can't deliver. I think there's a product here. I just don't know how they get into that market. Who's the big fish that they need to <laughs> land right. yeah. to, to make this make sense? Or or is or are they really just going after smaller regional telcos that maybe haven't gotten into the big open source projects that the AT&Ts of the world are using? You know, I'm not sure. Well, I have Rick, to assume I that they think there's money there because they've been throwing, I think they've got about 1,000 to 2,000 people in this team who are chasing after the telcos and have been doing so for a number of years now. Um, and they have a, a series of blog posts where the telco cloud product announces month after month this and this and this and this. I know that some telcos have picked it up, but at the same time, they have to compete with vendors like Nokia and Ericsson in Samsung in the 5G space who've really got as much stake in doing this and can do all of this without VMware, right? It doesn't take much to orchestrate containers and VMs from an open source tool chain or to do something yourself. Well, there's a bigger thing here, which is 5G is not a bandwidth story. So many people are, that are starting to switch to 5G realize that the performance in their hand on their phone doesn't feel much different, uh, 5G no, versus 4G, no. meaning the sell for 5G is not going to be increased bandwidth. The rollout and the payback is going to have to come in novel applications and specific use cases that are going to drive uh, uh, adoption and, you know, and all of that. Yeah. And so I think this is all about that platform that's going to allow whatever the money-making application applications that are going to make that 5G upgrade relevant. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think, I disagree. For me, it's the idea that you, that telcos are going to offer you some sort of service that you're going to pay them for, or they can offer something to people who will pay them to put their instance in there. That doesn't, that doesn't wash with me. Oh, you're Nobody talking about the consumer telco. perspective. I'm talking about the telco consumer, perspective. All the, yeah. All the tel- yeah, right. I think the thing about 5G is that it's a chance to fundamentally replace the legacy hardware, you know, the custom boxes with the, the custom app on top of it and replace it with a software-defined infrastructure of some sort, right? So this idea of commodity x86 servers, ARM servers, standardized switches, and then everything that's in the 5G pop is just software after that. Hmm. Moving 3G and 4G was all this custom hardware, you know, the the virtual, the physical appliance with the custom hardware. And every time you wanted to upgrade it, 
you had to send somebody to site with a serial console cable to do the update. Whereas 5G to me is an operational play. It upgrades the infrastructure from the old way to the new way. It doesn't actually change anything for the customer. It does set us up for a rebirth around the new spectrum that's been available for 5G. But if you actually research the 4G, 5G standards, what you'll realize is that 4G got up to schedule 22, I think it was. And they said, that's enough schedules. We're now going to call it 5G. And it's effectively uh, 4G schedule 23, right? (laughs) There was no massive feature change between the two. It's just literally inside of the standards, there's a thing called four and a half G and they kept adding some stuff to it. And they said like, we really need to call this 5G now. And they all agreed. And that's what it is. There's nothing in there that's fresh. There's less than 1% of people living in metro areas that can enjoy millimeter wave and the high bandwidth there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, five, fifth announcement, Greg, and we can uh, move on from VMworld announcements. VMware accelerates customers' journey to zero trust security. This was really a kitchen sink announcement. They hooked us with zero mm-hmm. trust because that's all the rage these days. And what you've got in this announcement is a whole bunch of things relating to security. VMware NSX is doing more zero trust kind of stuff. Uh, you've got they've got an in. They're calling it an industry-first Elastic Application Security Edge, E-A-S-E, which you'd say ease, but no, the announcer says that's pronounced easy. <laughs> fine, easy. okay, <laughs> easy, but even though it says ease, fine. Um, and that's supposed to enable networking and security infrastructure at the data center or cloud edge to flex and adjust as app traffic changes. I have no idea what that means. Does that mean there's like virtual firewalls popping up if there's a load mm-hmm. change? I don't know exactly. They didn't get into it exactly what that means. Yeah. But I'm sure we'll hear more about it if they if they drive ahead because securities were a lot of money's at. And if they want to sell, they'll talk about it a lot. Um, another this thing. Is, go ahead. This, this actual, this whole zero trust story or VMware security story is the one thing I'll buy. Mm-hmm. If they can bind the security tools into the VM into the network stack, like in NSX, inside of the virtual switching stack that they've got there, and integrate that with the SASE, like the VeloCloud SASE stuff at the edge, and then integrate it into the service mesh and have the same policies across all of this, if you understand what I'm going, and then they start to do distributed work, so IPsec type tunnels or TLS VPNs, and then start to integrate that with zero trust. That is, zero trust is a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but the idea is that you authenticate somebody at the edge of the network and then you actually fingerprint them based on where they're coming from and what apps they're coming to. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with all this, you know? Greg. I agree with that analysis. The keyword is integration. I ha- I don't know like how well have they done the integration between Velo and NSX for uh, zero trust sort yes. of a policy. How well is that going? Not, mm-hmm. not sure. I agree that all the pieces are definitely there. I want to hear VMware talking about eBPF because they're so close to the workloads. Is that a possibility for them to get into? It's a different place than they are because they're they're right, higher yeah. up the stack. But I, I do want to hear that eBPF story to truly deliver mm-hmm. uh, scalable, um, deeply, deep, deep policy style of zero trust because i think that's where ultimately this game goes as long as we I stay they, out of the kernel i think they fail fail to mention that enough or to tell that story enough mm. that to me it's not i think they could have a rate of second rate products everywhere else which they're kind of some that some are quite second rate and some of them are leading like nsx is far ahead vsphere is obviously far ahead as a cloud portfolio yeah you know Where's the apps? You know, like where's the SQL database in this? I've still got to go and get everything else that I need, if you if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but the thing that they could offer me is a unified security portfolio that runs across everything. And, and I don't. And they, they cited Carbon Black. Carbon Black Cloud yeah. is now integrated with a simple switch in vCenter, so you can do better for protection from ransomware attacks. I don't think there's anything unique about Carbon Black yep. protecting you from ransomware, but they're making it easier to leverage it. VMware Tanzu Service Mesh, new level of distributed visibility, discovery, and security for APIs. Yep. So they're they're getting on the service mesh train and having it be a, a middle man for APIs and improving API security. Yeah, but and we already talked about where's, SAS, the, where's so the DR? Where, where's my data recovery, right? That's because the thing that's missing here is- there. I don't know that that's missing, yeah. no, because they definitely talked about DR in one of the announcements. Where's my um, backups? First one, Why is but... VMware not doing backups? Why do I have to go to a third party to do backups? Mm. Right? Mm. To me, this just doesn't make any sense in 2022 that, I, that all these things that VMware does for me, and it still doesn't do core competencies like backup, server deployment, server operations, right? I have to go and buy third-party tools for all of this stuff 
and VMware doesn't do that. And it feels like there's these, it's like, it's like we're a cloud, except for the things that are actually take up all the operational load, storage, networking, internet connectivity. So, the, so they buy rubric and integrate it and we're done. And I don't think it's a hard to problem to, to solve, the, I guess is what I'm, what I'm saying, because and there's they also so need many to take products over the, out there that do it well, that customers are already invested yeah. in. VMware would need to acquire for that to make sense as a market play for them, because everyone else, all the companies that they're doing business with have a solution that really integrates with cloud and probably integrates with VMware. Yeah. So VMware coming to market with their own backup product makes no sense to me. Acquiring no. someone, like Rubrik, because why not? Uh, oh yeah, why not? Well, whoever it is, whoever right? it is, yeah. And the thing is, of course, they can't afford Rubrik because VMware's just That's not that big. Market cap. Well, there's mm. money there. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Your Rubrik market cap is, um, you know, not not well known. I don't think, but it's billions. Uh, so yes. yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on, Greg. Uh, VMware, mm -hmm. VMworld 2021. So much. Keep your eyes on what VMware is doing. But now let's move on to Facebook, Greg. Oh, Facebook was off the air gun. for six hours. Double foot gun. Oh, tell me a how you think they gun. have a double yeah, foot gun. Yeah, someone gave them a gun. I uh, call it a foot gun because it's a foot. It's a gun that points at your feet. Mm -hmm. And they put one in each hand and then said, pull the trigger. And Facebook pulled the trigger. <laughs> <laughs> I like to call those double foot guns. right over. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's BGP, of course. <laughs> this time, the, the bullets in the gun were BGP. Hardly surprising we've known about that. Um, this week, Facebook had an outage, a substantial outage. I think it was around 16 hours in all. And the basic story goes something like they were doing some work on the DNS. It looks, some people suggested they might be doing RPKI. Some people suggested that they might have been doing something with the DNS. And the outage reports are notably lack of information and very PR scrubby looking. Like they yeah, look the, like a lawyer. The, the best we got was a, mm -hmm. um, a follow-up outage explanation that said essentially someone was checking on, we were getting ready to do some work and someone mm -hmm. typed a command that was going to check capacity at various data centers because we were getting ready to take something offline so we could do some maintenance. But the command to check that we had enough capacity to take that site offline blew up somehow. And the end result of that took their BGP advertisements uh, down. So they were no longer announcing Facebook address based to the internet. We can't find anything. And then that clobbered DNS because DNS had some kind of a health check that said, basically, we should not be uh, online as DNS if we are unreachable. Hey, we're unreachable. And so all the <laughs> DNS went dark as well. So That's right. th th there's your double foot gun from my perspective anyway. That's right. And then it turns out that due to the fact of the way they do their operational, so Facebook uses its platform to do everything. And I'm talking from canteens. If you want to order a burger, order a burger at a canteen, you actually use the Facebook um, operating platform for that. And apparently their physical security was all connected to it. And they discovered that with their physical security being down, they couldn't physically get into their data centers. So they literally had people traveling to the data centers that Facebook owns and operates, and they couldn't get through the door because the doors are electronically operated by the platform that was down. Mm-hmm. Right. So the whole internal network collapsed as well. And the out-of-band network collapsed as well. That was another piece of this. They weren't able to get through from that, requiring the physical uh, yeah. uh, walking humans to the sites. <laughs> <laughs> they ended up bringing angle grinders and crowbars to the data centers to try and get through the doors. Apparently. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Is that just a rumor? Yes. That actually happened. I believe so. There was, a, it was, uh, there were several people on Twitter the best part is I heard to cutting tool to get act to each. I suspect it was <laughs> oh, yeah. different data centers had different problems, right? But there would be, I could certainly believe that someone would design a data center that had no physical key. If you are a Facebook person and you have an utter and complete belief in the, in the, your platform being a hundred percent up. Right. And I could certainly believe it that search for, for some of their data centers that this would be true. I wouldn't necessarily say it'd be true for all of them. Um, but oh. yeah. So well, even getting me, uh... into the data center to bring it back, and then of course bringing it back, um, what was happening also was that there was so much traffic going to Facebook's DNS servers that people's <laughs> right. intermediate DNS servers were going down. 
Well, kind of like the problem of, uh, right, you've got all of these apps on phones and computers and Mm -hmm. so on trying desperately to reach Facebook and can't. And so you've got the same problem you have like when there's a massive power outage in a data center and you need to bring all the equipment back online, huge amp draw that can blow circuits. And so you're supposed to do a phased in power ups uh, situation when you do that. This was a little more complicated. I read an article from a DNS person saying that their DNS was working fine. Uh, and then the load on the de- now. What you've got to remember is that Facebook's own apps do a DNS over HTTPS connection directly to H- Facebook servers. Um, they don't actually use generic DNS. They are hardwired to use Facebook's own servers. But I imagine if that fails, they switch to DNS. And what was happening was these queries were going into DNS servers, and a lot of people's intermediate servers weren't able to respond to the fact that they were getting no response. What should happen is the root servers should actually respond and say query not answered or no reply. But if it just goes into a black hole and there's no answer, which happened at some point as systems started to come back, the intermediate DNS servers of people's ISP started to go down. DNS is notorious for being Mm -hmm. uh, written in customized ways that are not standard. And sometimes that can, sometimes that's good. And sometimes these edge cases are where it, yeah, my point is that these edge cases where if you make a query and you don't get a reply, what does the DNS server do? And then yes. there's a whole bunch of um, things that go on in DNS that in the back end to how fast does the server release an, a no answer? How often? Do, yes. If you yeah. can't get an answer, how long do you hold up? sustain yeah. that? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, so there's a bunch of links in the show notes about that. The interesting thing about the end of it is that it, Facebook being down, the world didn't end. Just, just, just observing. Yeah, it did not. And uh, in fact, I heard from someone who's an ardent Facebook user and uh, he told me roughly, wow, I had peace, didn't realize I was scrolling and scrolling all the time. And uh, I had this sense of relief and a lack of stress uh, because of this thing. And uh, now I'm thinking about deleting my Facebook account, he told me, which was a little bit shocking because he's been into Facebook for so long. It's where he gets all his conspiracy theories. <laughs> There's hope for the world yet, but I think so, it's going to be embarrassing for Facebook because this could come back at them because they've been making the pitch to world governments at geopolitical levels that their mission critical infrastructure, if they weren't around, the world, you know, the business would be impacted and all that sort of stuff. And Facebook went away and the world did not end. It did not end. So, and uh, we already know from other unrelated stories that their ad model is being desperately impacted by ad blockers and people opting in for privacy on their Apple yeah. devices and uh, and so on. Yeah. It's not that Facebook will go away, but they will probably in the long run become less in, less of what they are less today. Relevant. They become less, America less Online relevant. still exists, Greg. AOL still yes. is still an entity, you know? And MySpace, et cetera. All those yeah. others are still, <laughs> yeah. As I, so they're hopeful. Well, let's stop for a moment and talk about our sponsor, Juniper Abstra. Juniper Abstra is an intent-based solution that simplifies the deployment and operations and management of your data center network from day zero through day two. Now, Abstra sets up the network based on your business requirements, ensures that the network is provisioned accurately, and alerts you when deviations occur. This is configuration management. And automated validation process eliminates human errors that can lead to security vulnerabilities due to misconfiguration. And this is a very good way to stabilize your network. If people do try and change something that doesn't conform to a policy, you can use tools like apps to prevent that from happening or to alert you when it does. And that way you don't get those, hey, I just rebooted this. Oh, why is it not going <laughs> situation. Why is the door? Why do I need a crowbar to open this door? No, I'm just joking. Abstra also optimizes your day two operations with enhanced visibility, intent-based analytics, and root cause analysis. So you can quickly identify and resolve issues, which reduces the mean time to resolution, or as I like to call it, mean time to innocence. Abstra's multi-vendor support provides the vendor abstraction required to effectively manage a heterogeneous environment. Now, that is a cool toolkit about Abstra is even though Juniper acquired Abstra, they're maintaining and have publicly stated the multi-vendor aspect. They will continue to support a wide range of vendor products in the data center. And that's a reality for many people. Why are you throwing away switches? Why do I need to replace the hardware? And in the supply chain environment like we've got right now, this might be a feature for you. And that also removes the steep learning curve of multiple management tools, eliminates tool proliferation, and reduces some of the complexity of operating the data center equipment. As a result, Abstra provides up to 80% improvements in operational efficiency, 70% improvements in mean time to repair, and 90% improvements in time to deliver. 
And some of the customers using Appster today include Yahoo, T-Mobile, and Belastric. If you want more information, go over to www.juniper.net slash packetpushes slash Appster. We can get more information and uh, tell them that Packet Pushes sent you. Hey, on Appstra, if you are listening and you just heard a lot of blah, blah in that ad, go to YouTube and look for some Appstra demos and then you'll get it. There is some yeah. really neat stuff that they're doing. Anyway, Marvel's got an announcement, Greg. Yeah, I was very excited to see. I always get a little excited about hardware. I'm still, after all these years, I'm still into the hardware thing. So Marvel this week announced uh, two announcements. One is around their new Ethernet switch chip, the Prestira 7 D- DX7321 and a DPU announcement. Let me break them down for you. The Prestira DX7321 is an ethernet switch. It's right out at the edge of the networks, designed for telcos in 5G. (laughs) It really is targeted at 5G. After all, we did just say on 5G, (laughs) just to give you an idea. Uh, The uh, 98DX73XX series has a bandwidth of about 200 gig up to 1.6 terabits. So this is not a data center class switch. It's not a an Inovium or a Barefoot or a you know uh, a Broadcom June Trident type thing. This is very much an edge switch. It's doing mm. 25 to 50 gig. Um, but what is unique about this particular switch chip is that it actually has the PAM4, a 50 gig PAM4 SIRDES on board. So instead of where the chipsets in the uh, previous generations, you used to have the ASIC and then you have to wind in, uh, strap on a whole bunch of chips around the edge to do surdezes and and gearboxes and all that sort of thing. They're now being all welded into a single asset. That dramatically lowers the price of these chips and also lowers the power consumption. Ah, and yeah. yeah. And then the last thing is that this is a five nanometer chip. Now we've talked a lot about um, silicon and ASICs on the podcast over the last six months and how shrinking the die size. But in networking, we've not normally seen um, the nanometer process is talked about very much. So, for example, Cisco's chips are usually several generations behind. They choose to use the um, older and cheaper technology, which is perfectly fine. The speed doesn't change much. But in this case, Marvell is going making a big noise about its five nanometer process. And again, low power. What I do notice is that they don't talk about a delivery time. Normally in these product announcements, when you talk about a switch, it says something along the lines of sampling in Q4 2022 or something like that. They've certainly announced the switch and we know so much about the supply chain and how there's a shortage of silicon manufacturing. I do have some concerns about when this would actually deliver, but it looks like a pretty crazy sort of campus edge switch um, designed for the telcos to give you the feature. And it's got a bunch of carrier features like PPTP and Sync E and various things that the telcos want for um, their networks in the backbone. Uh, the fab problem is not going away soon. It's it's no. the fab. It's just not going away soon. There's more facilities being built, uh, certainly in the U.S. Uh, plenty of press about that. But with China controlling, you know, factory production uh, by eliminating power, you guys got to shut down for a certain amount of hours. Yeah, that's which, right. That which, was which one of isn't yeah. just you know silicon, but I mean the, that's another thing that's happening, and just the demand is so pent up because so many people want stuff that need chips. Fab again, it's just not going away. Um, the demand a, was un- wasn't the predicted. Time is yeah. is a struggle. Well, there was a few things there. One was we knew that demand for silicon was ramping up and the factories, the, the fabs were ramping up, but then COVID meant there was disruptions to the supply chain. And then um, they thought that the market would shrink as people stayed at home and the reverse happened. Uh, demand continued to rise, but the factories were impacted. And so you have perfect conditions for a supply chain hiccup where the manufacturing doesn't increase as the demand curve and there's a reduction in pricing. Uh, the second thing, possibly even more exciting for most people, is that Marvell announced their Octeon 10 DPU family. And again, this is built on TSMC's 5 nanometer process and incorporates 64-bit Neoverse N2 ARM cores. Now, when you think about this, this is a NIC, a smart NIC chip, and you can get it in different configurations, 8 to 36 64-bit ARM Neoverse N2 cores clocking at up to 2.5 gigahertz on a single on a single TPU. This supports up to 36 megabits of L2 and 72 megabytes of L3 cache, and you can run up to 12 DDR5 memory modules at 55,200 megatransfers per second. That is real performance on a DPU. That is, I don't know about server class, but it's getting very, very close to that. Wow. You know my feelings on DPUs, Ethan. Yeah, well, I'm very excited yes, about that. You are, yes. 
so it is worth um, taking a read at their um, on their brochure about it. I don't have a uh, tech capability here to separate out and to compare this DPU against others, but I think it's very interesting to see that Marvell is stepping up its investments in this area. Obviously, we've seen Intel get into DPUs recently. They've announced a series of announcements. Uh, we have a number of other vendors out there doing things with FPGA-driven DPUs, uh, and I expect that Broadcom will have to do something in this space. And obviously, NVIDIA has a big DPU ecosystem going on. Um, I think we'll see a lot more about this emerging and we'll be continuing to talk about it on the network break in the years to come, no doubt. Mm. Uh, and finally, uh, one of the fun stories, just to wrap this up, uh, the Register was reporting this week about a company in Australia that is using the fiber optic cables in the ground that can sense when they're about to be dug up and send a warning. What? I just <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean? there? <laughs> So what are they doing? Are they strapping some kind of a sensor onto the cable? I mean, there's obviously nothing in a fiber optic cable that would lend itself to such a, a sensing. So they must be bolting on a sensor of some sort, right? Well, if you actually closely monitor the actual signal in the strain, in the in the fiber, you can actually detect variation in the light waves that would be able to say, oh, there's a jackhammer nearby, or I'm being vibrated more than normal. I oh, Jesus, it sounds stress. like a quantum key distribution uh, recording with uh, <laughs> Dr. Slater, my word. Okay. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a company in Australia called FiberSense, and they're actually using the fiber optics to detect earthquakes and to detect any vibrations. Uh, they can detect things like passing traffic with sufficient accuracy to determine the difference between a truck, a cyclist, and even tell you what lane a vehicle used. Leaky pipes can also be sensed, as can the geotechnical profile of the spoil beneath the fibres. Really? Backhoes and jackhammers are easy. I like to think of this as the fibre optic cable is screaming in pain when it starts to be attacked. <laughs> 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 help, help, I'm help. Down, no, no, help me, help me. Remember there was a big announcement a while back that trees can cry, like they can scream in pain. And this, I just instantly thought the same thing. I think uh, there is a business angle though, of course, telcos would be very interested in being able to sell information to people on this sort of basis. Like, you know, oh, you'd like to use our cables as earthquake monitors? Sure, we can work up a price for that. Uh, well, on that note, Thanks so much for listening to today's show. And um, if you want any more of the of the details of what we talked about to go, head on over to packetpushes.net and the network break and there'll be show notes associated with it. And stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet on zero trust network access across their portfolio. Very relevant given what we talked about today. And that's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking zero trust network access or ZTNA with sponsor Fortinet and as organizations grapple with controlling end user access to applications and services, particularly when those end users and applications could be anywhere. Fortinet is here to make the case that it's the right platform for ZTNA. Our guest is Peter Newton. He is Senior Director of Products and Services at Fortinet. Peter, welcome to the podcast. So it feels right now like that the marketing gravity around ZTNA is getting so heavy that it's in danger of collapsing in on itself and turning into a black hole that sucks in everything else. What is driving all this energy around ZTNA? ZTNA is getting a lot of airtime right now simply because it's the right solution. It's the uh, effectively the evolution of remote access. And, you know, we've all been in a pandemic. We've been working remotely and we've really recognized the limits of VPN technology for doing remote access. And so organizations are looking for a better means of getting users to applications. And I think the big difference for me with ZTNA is it's less about, it's obviously access is the first thing, but it's also about controlling access to individual applications. Absolutely. And that's where ZTNA shines versus VPN is it uh, addresses the work from anywhere uh, scenario where companies are trying to figure out how can I support my workers when they're in the office, when they're at home, but also they're grappling with the cloud journey. They're moving more applications uh, from uh, being hosted on-premise to being hosted in public clouds and private clouds. And they want to be able to control that as well. ZTNA supports yeah, it's both sides. It's that. actually both sides, isn't it? It's, it's not only are the users more mobile, you've gone from, you know, a, a user, a company with 10,000 employees used to have a hundred branches say, and mm -hmm. now they've got 6,000 branches effectively because people are working in a distributed exactly. fashion. Branch or one. And that's and that's here to stay, give or take it to some level or another. We don't know what what level it's going to be, but it's going to be something. And that authenticating those people is changing because once we used to just authenticate them when they got to work, they'd log in in the morning, log out in the evening. We also now need to do this persistent or repeated authorization or checks 
to say, are you still who you say you are? Because you actually don't know where they are. You've lost that one authentication step of now you're in the office. And that's exactly true. And that those are that's some of the key concepts behind the zero trust approach in general, is you want to do that ongoing verification. And ZTNA enables that in this remote workforce uh, application of it. So that now with ZTNA, you can do application, uh, you can do, sorry, user verification, you can use device uh, identity and posture checks for every single session for every single application. So, you know, you, you launch three applications in the morning, you stop, go to a meeting, you come back. When you launch those three applications again with ZTNA, you're going to get revalidated. Your device is going to get re-identified, uh, re-cluster hmm. checked uh, to make sure that everything is still safe to connect you to that application. Okay, so let's break down all the pieces here because there's a lot involved. So if you're talking about devices and end users, there's obviously a client part of this. Yes. Yeah, there's basically two different models for ZTNA. One is called a services-initiated model. Um, and the other one is a client initiated model. We've uh, at Fortinet have it gone for the client initiated because we see that as uh, a more user friendly and we think really a more capable model. It's more user friendly because unlike on the service initiated, when a user goes to connect to a cloud hosted service, um, they need to typically download a, a plug into their browser to, to do some of the ZTNA stuff. Uh, so then you've got your, you know, depending on the links, you could be looking at a a while while that gets downloaded and installed. With the client initiated, the client is already installed on the device that's connecting. And so one, it's a faster experience for the end user, but two, actually you have much more control and visibility of that device. So from an administrative standpoint, uh, you have more information about what the state of that device is, what what it's doing, what it has been doing, uh, so that when it does connect and you're doing those posture checks, you're doing that validation of do you want to bring this device onto your network and access mm. applications, you got a whole lot more information. So that's why we've gone so think, with a, a client. So initiated. I think the way you're looking at it is you're saying that zero trust isn't just about authenticating you wherever you are and authorizing you and then authorizing you perhaps because to some extent those types of principles are table stakes. It's also the continuous authorization and reauthorization. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm 2F8 all the time. It's a, it's a subjective revalidation. If something significant has changed, I might want to reinforce the author, the the login process or something. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if you had to uh, do a username password for every single session, for every single application, you'd go crazy. So, you know, <laughs> ZTNA um, does support single sign-on. And to your point, it can trigger a username, password, or multi-factor if it sees something that's out of context that it want, or maybe the application being accessed is, you know, the crown jewels of the company. You really want mm -hmm. to make sure that this is indeed an individual that you want connecting uh, and accessing that application and not someone who's hacked credentials or stolen something. You mentioned posture checks. What is it that you're checking? Are things like the, the operating system, the version, is there AV on the client, that kind of thing? That thing, as well as uh, are there any other significant events that might have happened on the device that make it put it in a vulnerable state? Uh, so it's looking at all of those capabilities. And, uh, you know, also you're also checking to make sure that the user is, uh, you know, should have access to that uh, application, i.e. It's someone in your IT department gets access to the IT applications. They don't necessarily get access to the R&D applications. Um, so you want to check all of that information. All right. So that's the client part. How do we get to mapping those clients to applications and what they're allowed to access and when? The how of that is basically utilizing a lot of user groups because users of the similar type will need to have access to similar applications. It's most easy to administer that with uh, role-based rules. So then you just set up those rules in the, in the FortiGate. The FortiGate will then uh, enforce those as users go to connect to those applications. Okay, so I'm thinking of sort of a traditional, you know, Active Directory structure where I've got my HR group, my engineering group, et cetera. Yes. Am I pulling that into a FortiGate or am I recreating it in the FortiGate? Oh, no, 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 you're just referencing it. Earlier, someone said that ZTNA has to do the authentication. Well, I would nuance that a bit to say that ZTNA pulls on whatever authentication you have in place. You don't have to create a whole new thing. And similarly here for the user groups, you're not creating a whole new thing. You're really leveraging the uh, user groups, the role-based uh, control that you already have, the authentication systems that you already have. And we're just then using zero trust principles to apply that for every session uh, when someone goes to access the application. Mm. Okay. So you're not talking about me having to essentially recreate my entire, you know, 
AAA or radius infrastructure, my directory infrastructure, I'm already, I'm leveraging that and sort of coordinating it with the Fortinet products. Exactly. Yes. As you know, the, the Fortinet products are kind of based around this uh, security fabric concept. These products that work together to give the visibility across the attack surface. They're integrated so they share information and they're automated so they can actually take automated action. And importantly, it's not just Fortinet products that do this and have integrations and can share information, but there's a whole ecosystem of security vendors. And, you know, for example, we're talking about authentication right now. Uh, the Fortinet security fabric works with, you know, Okta and Microsoft and Ping and a lot of these other uh, authentication providers, as well as having our own authentication solution. We have Forti Authenticator and Forti Token for that multi-factor capabilities. But the point is all of these are integrated together and ZTNA brings these new zero trust capabilities into that mapping users and connecting users to applications, but it ties on all the parts already existing in the security fabric. So we mentioned the 40 gates. Is this a separate sort of ZTNA appliance I'm using or am I tying in this into uh, any Fortinet firewalls I'm running? That's a good point. Uh, ZTNA is an unlicensed feature from Fortinet. So that means that if you own a FortiGate, you have our FortiClient running, then this is simply a new toy that you can uh, open up and play with. Uh, You upgrade to uh, a 7 out X firmware on both of those and the ZTNA capabilities are there. It's just another example of how Fortinet continues to integrate more into our FortiOS. That's our operating system on our FortiGates and bringing more unlicensed features. We did this a couple of years ago with SD-WAN and that's been wildly successful for us. Uh, yeah, that's, and that's a key thing here is that most organizations want to nickel and dime you with every feature that's in the firewall. One of the, now that's not to say that you don't have licenses and licensing levels, but you're also not making it just inordinately complicated to buy your product. I would say that's one of Fortinet's strengths. So I think that's why the FortiGate is the absolutely most popular firewall in the world. Uh, we ship more FortiGates than the next three competitors combined. Uh, I think our installed base is somewhere in the you know six or seven million units out there now. So it's mm-hmm. uh, the approach that Fortinet has taken to building the FortiGates, doing our own ASIC, so we have the power to power the the next-gen firewall, to power the SD-WAN, to power a wireless controller in there, to power a switch controller in there. And now we're adding on ZTNA as another capability that we have as just a part of the base offering. Those are all unlicensed features in the sense that you buy a 48, you get all those things for free. Provided you've upgraded to the latest firmware, which includes it and all that sort of stuff. Uh, From a security standpoint, you always want to be on the latest firmware (laughs) so that you have everything working as best as it can. Yeah, well, you know, there's a difference between what we want and what the real world looks like. And we have to acknowledge that that's there, you know, or or as the CEOs tend to say, every customer journey is different. You know, it's like, (laughs) no, or unique is another word, you know, save me, save me. I guess the question here is now I know that Fortinet firewalls have a custom ethic (laughs) and that is Karen intuitively because most other firewalls now just use you know, bog standard x86 motherboards, usually standard reference templates from Intel, and then maybe they add a fancy nick and that's their their speed. Is that somehow how you manage to get these features into the box or is that, is that unique in some way? Yeah, that's core to, to who Fortinet is and why we're so successful and that we are the only security company that does have that custom ASIC. But it's the same idea as, you know, your, your GPU unit. You know, you can run graphics on your CPU. It just takes longer because it's not optimized for those functions. Hmm. In the same vein, we have a custom security ASIC that can do those ASIC functions in hardware. And so it, you have your CPU there, but it's doing the more general purpose stuff. Uh, so that enables us to do stuff like software uh, SSL decryption. Uh, where it doesn't take down the performance of the box by 80% like you see on on the more general uh, CPU-based uh, security yeah. solutions out there. Well, they lean into the hard, the acceleration inside the CPU at best. Uh, yeah, but even there, we because we do both the hardware and the ASIC as well as the operating system, that we have an mm-hmm. extremely tight coupling and can get the most performance out of that uh, combination. So you sort of anticipated my next issue, which was that, okay, the more functions I start piling onto this box, next-gen firewall, SD-WAN, IPS, and now ZTNA, I'm going to start worrying about a performance hit. If you look at all the functions that we have and offer, you can turn those all on and compare it to a similar price box from a competitor. We'll still have two to three times the throughput. 
And all that's due to this tight coupling between the custom ASIC and the, and the firmware that we offer to uh, enable you to turn on all those features and get the get all you, you can out of the box uh, for all that we put into it. And then I guess my other question would be, okay, you're doing all these things, but are you, you know, doing them all sort of mediocre? Am I, or like, this is, again, we get back to this best of breed argument versus, you know, put it all on one platform. Well, uh, we are always adding new capabilities uh, to our solutions. And I think as a, a great testament to the fact that we do do them well, uh, you, you guys have heard of Gartner. They do magic <laughs> quadrants to talk about various technologies. We're the leader in the next-gen firewall quadrant, as well as the leader in the SD-WAN quadrant with the same exact product. So it's the same box, running the same firmware. They're just testing different flavors of it. And we are industry leaders on both of those. So I think that's a great example to show that Fortinet does best of class, even though we're doing all these different things uh, in the same box. But Garden is great for the C-suite, but I think our listeners are probably more inclined to want to get a box in a lab and start throwing stuff at it and see for themselves. You could actually license just a uh, 48VM and run it there. We run the same operating system across every single box. So you could buy one of our lower end uh, units for not too much and get into a lab and start playing with it. And you can see all the features that we have. We also got demo videos on our website and, and uh, other information. So if someone wants to learn more, they can go to fortinet.com. We have zero trust featured prominently on there. So it should be easy to find uh, our ZTNA solution. Right. Well, we've come to the end of our time. If you're thinking about ZTNA and you want to start building a short list, Fortinet may be something you want to consider. And, and Peter, where would you send folks if they want to do some uh, information gathering on their own? Fortinet is a strong believer in zero trust. So you come to our website, you will see uh, zero trust featured there. So fortinet.com uh, is where you can go. And you'll certainly be able to find about our overall zero trust solution, as well as specifically our ZTNA solution. All right, that's Fortinet.com, nice and simple. Thanks, Peter, for joining us, and thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free, technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.